Hey, fantasy fans. Before we start the episode, we just want to give a warning that this film features quite a bit of violence against children. Of course, we try to talk about it in as sensitive a way as possible, but it does take place in multiple parts throughout the film, and it's something that we bring up as part of our discussion, so we just wanted to give you advance warning before we begin. All right, recruits, welcome to your first day of Witcher training. Now, we're going to teach you a lot of the basics, you know, I mean, you're you're young kids, so we're just going to start with some of the, like, really simple stuff, like um, fighting with swords, uh, murdering monsters, Ooh. and introduction to handicrafts. Oh, that sounds like more like my speed. Yeah, so you have to know how to make a tourniquet for any gaping wounds. What? Oh, most of the crafts I do involve, like, macaroni and string? Well, you're gonna use string, so there's actually a type of monster that is mostly weak to macaroni, so you're gonna want to keep some very sharp macaroni in your witching kit. Oh, okay. How do we sharpen it? Now, hold on, let's not get too advanced now. That's not for the first day. First day is mostly gonna be a lot of sword fighting, I'm not gonna lie. You know, basic stuff. Stuff that is good for children. That makes sense to me. Well, you said we would be fighting monsters, and I've heard that a lot of recruits have died. But you know what? I wouldn't worry about that. You have to survive the training before we even get to that, so we'll figure it out as we go. Oh, Mommy. <laughs> I'm just kidding, kids. Most of you are doomed anyways. Huh? Oh, boy. <laughs> Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mulkel, here with my mutant co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a mutant fox-mushroom-person hybrid. Oh my god. Nice. Yeah. What does that entail? Like, I have fur... But I can commune with other plants. Okay, okay. A lot of furry plants out there, I'm sure. If a part of me gets cut off, I don't die. I just release spores. You know? It's interesting. Is that a defense mechanism? Yes. Every spore turns into another one of you. Yes. Right? That's right. Nice. So there's more fox mushroom hybrids out there. Wow, that sounds hard to get rid of. Not that I think we should get rid of you. Hey. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Uh, I'm no witcher, you know what I'm saying? But me? My name is Jack Olander, a mutant crossbreed between a spider, a mirror, and the concept of arachnophobia. So Horrifying. I have, to, I have to look at my own reflection and be terrified. <laughs> what happens to you when you're terrified? Oh, I just, uh, you know, I start screaming spider noises and it scares me and I just, you know, I'm just start freaking out. Does webbing start shooting out of your butt? (laughs) My mirror butt? They also did attach a butt to the mirror. So, important to know. (laughs) They should have called this movie Nightmare of the Spider. 
<laughs> the wolf spider. Oh, those are kind of cute. <laughs> yeah. But enough about spiders. I think it's time to talk about wolves. <laughs> well, if it isn't abundantly clear by now, this week we're going to be talking about The Witcher, Nightmare of the Wolf. But before we get into it, just want to remind our listeners that, hey, we have a Patreon. That's how we keep the torches lit here at Castle Satire. So if you enjoy our show, maybe consider heading on to patreon.com slash swords and satire. Take a look at the different support tiers and all the sweet bonus content you can get from backing us. Yeah, it's awesome. You can become a part of our patron community Vote on the movies that we watch every month and uh, get exclusive content at every tier. Pretty cool. But enough self-promotion. I think Chelsea has a thorough summary ready to go for The Witcher, Nightmare of the Wolf. That's right. Much like the original Witcher show, we kind of jump around in the timeline a bit during the movie. We get Vesemir as an adult and a witcher kind of scheming and, and chilling with Philavandro, the leader of the elves. Philandering with Philavandro. And then we get uh, his flashbacks of when he was a child and, and like getting to Kaer Morin and like his start as a servant with his friend Ilyana, who's also a servant and... They're not loving that lifestyle. What, peasantry? I mean, why wouldn't they love that? They just don't like cleaning out bedpans, you know? Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, during the scenes when Vesemir is an adult witcher, we get to see him dealing with the political intrigue and fighting monsters in Cadwin and the surrounding forests and dealing with Elven Kings is Phil Vandrill. Hey, Elven King, that's a great power metal band. <laughs> hmm? And uh, court witches that have it out for him. Oh, man, those court witches. Always causing trouble for witchers. And that's Tetra. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> Yen, Tetra, court witches, am I right? <laughs> Eventually, they team up together to deal with a threat that's been plaguing Cadwin in the surrounding forests, and they find out that all of these monsters are hybrids that are being led by an elven monster hybrid named Kitsu. And you know the real danger of fighting hybrids? They get such good gas mileage. <laughs> they just never run out of fuel. Great yeah. for the environment and having their batteries explode. So during these adventures, it seems like Vesemir and Tetra have some bonding moments as they're saving each other's lives multiple times. I'm sure they're going to be longtime friends. Yeah, right. <laughs> and these scenes are interspersed with Vesemir's backstory, where we get to see his training as a, a young witcher-to-be. <laughs> <laughs> and his, his An aspiring witcher. Yeah, and his uh, fellow recruits. And you see him kind of being a leader among them. So back in adult Vesemir's timeline. Um, <laughs> Dadimir. <laughs> Dadimir. Vesemir and Tetra chase down Kitsu. They're tracking her. They find her den. When they go inside, they find evidence of all of the lost 
elven female children that Philavandrel had warned Vesemir about earlier in the movie during some of their their talks and their their hangs, their we, buddy time. We call them bathtub talks. <laughs> yeah. And they see a lab deep in Kitsu's den. And they realize she's been trying to make more monsters like herself. Aww. Elven monster hybrids. Aww. How cute. She wants community. She just wants some friends. Who doesn't? Oh, I forgot to mention before, she's a master illusionist. Like, super, super master. Tetra points out that it's unnaturally strong. She can create, like, an entire acre of illusion. Yeah, and just to be clear, this is Kitsu we're talking about has this power. Buku illusion. And so she's yeah. trying to create more versions of herself, and she probably figures it'll make her safer, you know, because she's... she's Hunted for being what she is. I mean, elves in this setting already not treated super good. Hybrid mutant elves? No yeah. way. <laughs> if and you so, were a hybrid mutant elf, no way. <laughs> Philavandrel shows up. He's obviously been following them, which Vesemir isn't too happy about. They find a surviving elf child there who's obviously already been experimented on. Philavandrel convinces Vesemir to let him take this child back to his people to raise as an elf. He he wants to accept her back into their society because they're a dying race and they can't afford to be too prejudiced. So it becomes clear to everyone who saw this lab and who has seen Kitsu's power that somebody else made her. She was trying to make more of herself, but somebody else made her. Who makes the real monsters? Or who's the real monster who makes the monsters? Lots of interesting questions like that. To sum up, there's some investigation, some pointing of fingers in courts, rooms, and uh, comes out that Vesemir figures out Daeglin has been making these monsters as well as the other mages that work in Kermorin. And they, who's Daeglin? Daeglin is Vesemir's mentor. Witch boss. And teacher, yeah. Or witcher boss. I guess since he retired from witchery. <laughs> Witcheringery. <laughs> he has uh, turned to um, eugenics. It's uh, monster eugenics. Not a good I, look. I don't think it makes it better. I no, think, it does not make it better. It's a lot nicer if all you say is Witcher supply and demand. <laughs> I guess. So, He's creating synergy. Yes. Promoting workplace uh, diversity. Opportunity. So it turns out that the Kermorin is corrupt and the whole Witcher system is super corrupt. Tetra leads. <laughs> Tetra has a whole cadre of acolytes, and um, if I haven't mentioned it before, she's the court witch um, in their kingdom, and so she she and her acolytes storm Kermorin and sack it with Kitsu's help, who helps portal in a bunch of monsters from the swamps. Oh, not the swamps. It just seems like a terrible place. Like, who would ever want to go there? Monsters. I guess so. Floridians. 
Okay, yeah. They live near Monster Swamp. They do. So, all this time, we've Ilyana has actually been part of the court of this kingdom because she had married a lord of these lands, and she now had an orphanage. She and Vesemir, through all of these adventures, kind of like rekindled their friendship and also friendship with oh, kissing, right? <laughs> and very flirtatious friendship. <laughs> the best line in the movie might be, "Oh, Vesemir, I'm almost seventy. and Vesemir just goes, "Me too." Yeah, it's pretty good. We were all like, "Oh," because just for uh, listeners, the uh, witchers don't age at the same rate as us mere mortals. Yeah, yeah. So they're both super hot in this scene. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And um, so she helps the young recruits evacuate during the raid. Including a suspiciously familiar looking young bald headed. Stoic child. Stoic (laughs) yellow eyed child. (laughs) What's his name? Harold? Feralt? Geralt. Oh, right. Yeah. I wonder if he'll be important someday. Eh. I wonder if he'll grow up to be a perfect specimen of manhood. (laughs) They'll probably call him something like the bald wolf. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I need to change my uh, profile name. Yes. So, Vesemir has a final confrontation in the lab with Kitsu and Tetra, and he's having to differentiate between what is real and what is an illusion created by Kitsu herself? And Mondays, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> he thinks he chooses correctly, but in the end he's wrong. He thinks he cuts down Tetra, but he really accidentally slays his friend and... His waifu. It's an anime. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good point. I guess his waifu, they were never really together, but they always wanted well, so, something so more. Well, so just to be clear, he thinks he kills Tetra and Kitsu. He actually kills the mage who's the last mage who can make witchers and Ilyana. Yeah. It's sad. <laughs> it's really sad. He, Daglin helps him. So um, then he does kill Tetra. <laughs> well, he, he, he wounds Tetra and Daglin comes in and helps him finish the job. <laughs> yeah, to say Let's the least. just say that. So Daglin tells Vesemir to escape with what's left of Ilyana. And <laughs> she's not dead yet. She's still in one piece. So he takes her to a lakeside. It's all frozen over because it's winter. He oh, uses yeah. his witcher powers to uh, freeze all the ice. So it's a pretty lake scene uh, with sunset. Charles and is getting choked up here. Melt all the ice, that is. Yeah, thank you. And Ilyana gets to wake up, have a last moment with, Vesemir before she passes on and says how beautiful it is and we have a very heartfelt sad moment when Vesemir is crying and then a few minutes later he's off and being snarky to find those witcher kids and start training them yep you know witchers recover quickly from loss I guess they have to deal with it a lot in their long lives (laughs) yeah trauma (laughs) (laughs) and so we leave off with Vesemir leading the recruits that survived uh, to train them. 
including a young Geralt. Okay, I think we're done. Wow, what a succinct and easy to follow <laughs> summary. Hey, this movie was really hard to talk about, actually. <laughs> I know. So why don't we head to the Delve? Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of The Witcher, Nightmare of the Wolf. So, I mentioned that this is a partially a coming-of-age story, a, a small hero's journey. Also a bit of a coming-of-rage story. <laughs> yes, very much. I mean, he's kind of an anti-hero, to be fair. I mean, to be fair, I think most witchers are kind of anti-heroes. That's, that's true. To that's some true. extent. Yes. I mean, is that what they are? Hmm. That's tough. They work for coin. Sure. But everybody But so does every D&D party. Yeah, and everybody in the setting has to work for some kind of coin. Yeah, I mean, this In is, this fantasy setting. It's, we don't know what that's like in reality. Right, yeah. Yeah. Totally made up, hard to relate to a world where if you can't, like, procure uh, coins, then you might just, like, live in squalor. Like, nobody can relate to that, obviously. Right. Yeah. Oh, wait, are we uh, preempting something here? <laughs> Thanks, post-scarcity robot communism. <laughs> so, his journey is also one of rebirth. His meaning Vesemir. Exactly. Because he is interested in becoming a witcher after Daeglin helped the lady of the noble house where he was serving as a child. Daeglin came in and helped get rid of a monster that was inhabiting her. Yeah, for some reason, Vesemir, like, uh, helps with this, and then Daeglin throws him a bag of money, and Vesemir is like, you know what, maybe being a peasant's not so great. Well, he always Strange. wanted something a little bit more life filled with adventure. When he saw how much money witchers make for what they do, he realized, I have a way out. And they all know the stories of what happens to new recruits, but he hated being a peasant so much he was willing to go through it. He was one of the few recruits there who actually chose to be there. <laughs> and one of the few who survives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, witchers fulfill an interesting societal role. They are, I would say, I think like when you say that they're anti-heroes, they are, I think, portrayed as a necessary evil, which uh, according to like the populace, mm -hmm. I think that the framing of most witchers in the shows and the books and the games, we're, we as the audience are more sympathetic to them than the world is. Right. We have a soft spot in our heart for them, you know? We do. And I mean, I think that that is, you know, by intention, by design, uh, not just because they are cast by tremendously talented actors and voice actors. Yeah. As, or, you know, uh, portrayed by. Um, no, but I think they fill this interesting societal role where they are both this necessary part of local safety. Mm -hmm. They protect the populace, but they also give the people a target of um, of enmity, right? Like something to put their fears and hatred into. Well, they're easy scapegoats. Exactly. Because people know a little bit of how they are made. 
they know that they are mutants of some type. Right. They all start as humans. So the way that witchers, the, the, the role that witchers fulfill in the society of the series is actually very similar to how gladiators of the Roman Empire uh, were kind of treated by society because gladiators were an entertainment, right? They're, yeah. they're kind of like the actors of the time. I mean, there was actors too back then, but people would go to the Coliseum and stuff, but it was also super low rung to be a gladiator. You were basically untouchable. Like you couldn't, nobody could associate with you. Anybody who did associate with you was Basically, the outcast of society. Well, a lot of gladiators were slaves. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's a big part of it. But even people who, for whatever reason, prisoners, slaves, etc., who became gladiators, you became infamous. And associating with gladiators was basically a, a social suicide. People could have their favorite gladiators that they cheered on. Sure. But you wouldn't be seen with them socially is what you're saying exactly if you were it would it was a a death knell for your status now we're probably talking about the noble class i mean i think it was pretty much everybody but maybe yeah i mean i I don't know all the details it was again if you associated with them it brought down your status okay and that seems to be the way that the witchers are portrayed in this series that's interesting i didn't make that connection but i feel like that is an easy real world historical parallel that helps me understand it a little bit better. Yeah, it's like people will shun witchers. I mean, we see it in like the tavern scenes in the first episode of the television show where Geralt meets Renfrey and the you know the tavern people, the people of the tavern are harassing Geralt. The same thing happens in Nightmare of the Wolf. These knights are like, oh, you guys are witchers? You're basically scum. Like, we are important noble knights. You are the bottom rung of society. We can, you know, treat you like shit. And then Vesemir and his friend Luca kill those knights and get in big trouble for it. Yeah, I mean, they're seen as like almost like a necessary evil that people have to just put up with because... Most people can't deal with the monsters they deal with. Exactly. And most people are openly hostile to them, like you're talking about. If they don't have the means to challenge them directly like the knight did, people will give them dirty looks or talk down to them. Exactly. Basically disrespect them. We saw that in the uh, the original Witcher show, too. Uh, but we get, like... It's even more pronounced in this movie. Yeah, it's true. If you think about it from the perspective of just like a random farmer, right? You're like 40 years old or something and into town rolls like a 300 year old cell sword. A person of sheer violence that's been killing giant monsters for 300 years. You're like, oh, fuck, get it out of here, please. (laughs) it's just like there's a demon possessing someone in town oh shit oh shit but then if you're that farmer and something is eating your cows you might need to hire a witcher it's true but i think a witcher probably scares most people and then is very helpful 
or is appreciated for being helpful by only a very few amount of people. That seems to be the way that the world is set up. Yeah. It, the the baseline reaction to a Witcher is disgust and fear. So this is a theme of othering in yeah. this, that comes up in this movie. So we're talking about one of the aspects that we see, which is prejudice. Which is prejudice. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Because, the, and people outright call them mutants. Right. And they are, but then it's that way that people say it. Yeah. That is just, <laughs> it they put it, that stank on it. It kind of turns it into a slur. Yes. You know? And um, the prejudice is, like, the slurs people say, the disrespect and the open hostility we see. But we also see another way that... When people or another group is othered, what typically happens to them, which is they become easy scapegoats. And so witchers are blamed for a lot of things that go wrong in people's lives. Or they can be blamed for the fact that monsters are around, even though they fight them. And they're called monsters themselves by people. It it doesn't help the case that in this movie, that is literally what happens. And that's... Yes. What Vesemir says to Daeglin, he's basically telling him, like, we're hypocrites. We're no better than the monsters themselves. Yeah, just to recap, or, or just to reiterate, Daeglin has been having the mages create monsters to send into the surrounding lands to give witchers work yeah. in the area because work is tight right and now. And this is the way that we mentioned that Kaer Morin and their whole witcher society has become corrupt. Because they're relying on this coin that people pay them to deal with the monsters of the world. And the, Daeglin said the monsters were dying off. They were doing their job. And instead of, like, reimagining what role the witchers could play in society and thinking of a new way forward, they just wanted to keep the problem going. This is reminding me of our discussion of the church and warrior nun. <laughs> oh, Good point. Yeah, yeah, how the church and kind of the, needs demons. Yeah, keeping the demons around so they can be the guiding light that people go to for help. Monsters are bad for commoners, but good for business. <laughs> yeah, I think somebody fucking basically says that during the movie. But so there's another way that they are made into scapegoats, and that is political pawns in Tetra's political maneuverings at the court. And Lady Zerbst, uh, as we know, is Ilyana. She speaks up for the witchers and says, you know, we need them. We need their services. They keep us safe. Especially that handsome Vesemir. <laughs> yeah, I know. It turns out she was biased, but uh, she wasn't totally wrong. She didn't know they were creating more monsters, but... And in Vesemir's defense, neither did he. That's true. But Tetra basically wanted the king of Cadwin to go after the witchers and basically declare war on them. And she was saying it was their fault that the land was plagued. She was like partially right because most of the witchers practicing at that time didn't know this was going on. They didn't know about the corruption within their own foundation. Yeah, it's mostly Daeglin's doing. Mm -hmm. And the mage that was helping him. Another thing that's sort of related to the supply-demand idea that we've been talking about with the witchers, right? 
is the witchers are trying to keep up appearances in a lot of ways. Like they're still very useful. They are making witchers at a rate that is unsustainable as well. Right. Good point. There's a scene where they get another shipment of children, right? Yeah. And they're like, wait, are we (laughs) making the word we want to use? Another delivery of children. And they're like, wait, are we making more witchers right now? Aren't we running a little low on work? And they're like, yeah, but we can't be running low on witchers. And so they're making more of them. Also, when it comes to the success rate of witcher creation, I'm going to say one to two. In Vesemir's case, it was two out of ten kids ended up making it through the witcher process. Yeah. And no, not a not, good return. Well, more like 1.8. <laughs> One of them lost an arm. You know what I'm saying? Oh, boy. But <laughs> 1.8 children will make it through the... Uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> they had a better success rate with the Geralt's generation because four of them made it out. Yeah. I mean, we don't know how many made it past. Well, there were four of them there when Ilyana went to save them. Sure. That's true. During the siege. But what I'm getting at here is they have 10 kids willing to fight monsters. Well, at least interested, interested in it or in a situation where they could be taught how to do it. Some of them are children of surprise. Right. Well, the thing is, it seems like one of the very first trials they go through is the monster swamp, Mm -hmm. right? Which sort of resulted in that 1.8 out of 10, from what I could tell. Yeah. And all I'm saying is, those other eight kids were not throwaway soldiers. I mean, especially from a humanitarian perspective, just killing them isn't the best. But, you know, they're a sort of brutal group. They're a survival of the fittest sort of folks. Yeah. It's very brutal. They don't give them much combat training or understanding of how to avoid monsters even before they just throw them in the swamp. We are touching on the fact that this series portrays child soldiers. Yes. Right. A big part of what I think being a witcher is supposed to be like the persona they're giving off is that they're selling super soldiers yes. is another thing. And I was thinking of that too. They are basically creating super soldiers. If you can't survive as a vanilla human against monsters, you don't get to be a witcher, right? Right. I guess so. And Vesemir basically just outran all of them. Right. Because the some of the greatest strengths of a witcher from my perception, is the knowledge of monsters. Oh, like I, thought what they were saying. I thought you were going to say abs. They're so hot. All, every single one of them. And their potions. <laughs> and their potions. Very powerful potions. Like fat burning potion. Clearly, yeah. <laughs> gotta get those abs. I don't see them working out uh, like a each few hours witcher, every day. <laughs> yeah, each wisher has to have 16 abs minimum. <laughs> Or 17, if well, you're really trying to push it. Just <laughs> one in the middle there. Going around in those leather sweatsuits has to help. Yeah, it's, oh, yeah you're right. But, Eventually, they need special armor just to hold up their torso. Yeah. They get so many abs. But be, <laughs> becoming... Non-Euclidean abs. That's good. But becoming a witcher, it seems like it gives you a lot of it advantageous stuff. You see better in the dark. You're immune to poison. You got other, a few other things. 
You get a, you get killed and brought back to life. You get the ability to start using signs and stuff like that. All very useful. But like I was saying, one of the greatest strengths they have is knowledge of monsters and how to fight them. Even if you don't deem a kid worthy of going through like Witcher transformation, still training soldiers with the ability what like with the knowledge of how to fight monsters would certainly be useful. Mm-hmm. And you'd have way more of those than you would which oh wait, that would be that would be business competition. Yeah, fuck them, I guess. You know? <laughs> Maybe that is the point. They don't want too much competition. That's dark. Yeah. I mean, I think it's mostly the fact that fighting monsters is really dangerous. Oh, yeah, it's true. But, I mean, there are a ton of people who would rather fight a monster than just let it be there, I think. Right? Sure, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about the, uh, you know, Witcher media is that what monsters are dangerous because they will just randomly and uh like chaotically kill anyone in their way and what monsters are monsters because society deems them monsters is always tied up in the stories in the series yeah because like going back to the show again like Renfri talks about how she and the other princesses of her generation were deemed monsters because they were women with power. What were they called? Like sisters of the black star or something like that? Yeah, something like that. They were born during an eclipse. And then like the Striga in, you know, the other episode of, of the television show is a victim. Who mm-hmm. who is basically a victim of her problematic birth? Yes. Well, uh, her she and her mother were cursed by a jilted lover. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's interesting to me that you know witchers fight a combination of monsters, and sometimes that monster is man, and sometimes that monster is your own friend or mentor, and that sometimes takes more strength to stand up to that kind of monster than it does to one that might be naturally your enemy. Boom. (laughs) Well said. Absolutely devastating. (laughs) See, but that's the thing. The movie kind of jumps around, I feel like, in how it handles these things. Because Vesemir is kind of mad at Daeglin, and, like, earlier on, he's kind of building a rapport with Tetra, and then suddenly Tetra, I mean, not suddenly, Tetra doesn't like witchers, but, like, Vesemir saves her life at least three times. She still goes back to the king and is like, fuck these witchers, we gotta get them out of here, even though this dude totally saved my life. Meanwhile, Vesemir is like, oh, Daeglin, you really fucked up and this was bad, but still fights on the side of Kaer Morhen. Yeah. He kind of tries to negotiate at first with Tetra. When that's not happening, he still defaults to, well, humans don't trust us. I can't integrate with them, it seems like. So I'm going to keep fighting on the side of the Witchers. Now, let's be clear. That negotiation goes south because Daeglin was unwilling to admit that he was wrong. Fair, but Vesemir... Hashtag toxic masculinity, am I right? Okay, fair point. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is... (laughs) And that scene where Daeglin mansplains supply and demand of monsters and human lives. Oh, Oh, disgusting. (laughs) 
I I don't want to completely absolve Tetra, but no. you make a strong case. Mm-hmm. I think part of why Vesemir sided with Kermorin in that conflict was because they were the defensive side in this particular battle as well. And Could he be. said that if they hadn't been the ones creating monsters, they could come out of the conflict with a clear conscience. Yeah. And he's, I mean, yeah. he's helping to defend them, but he thinks they're in the wrong. I think he also knows, like, you know, he'll never be able to fit into human society. Mm-hmm. It's true. He's not accepted. And he's connected to, you know, the other witchers. He's friends with these people. Yeah, he has bonds with them, even if they he thinks they fucked up royally. Mm-hmm. I think that actually, that whole scenario transitions into the theme of trauma really well because we we're talking about why tetra is having so much trouble with the witchers right? right we've mentioned she hates them a couple times hate pretty cringe seems to mm-hmm. be personal for her it's true and it is and you were mentioning like oh why does she dislike vesemir so much when he saved her life three times well the first impression they have of each other is very poor They are traveling alone together, and they're sitting around a campfire. She reveals that she knows forbidden fire magic, and he's like, cool. (laughs) Yeah, kind of illegal, but whatever. I like that, right? It's pretty neat. Anyway, she tells him this story of an old woman accused of being a witch because a curse is plaguing their town, and she gets killed for this. The priest is, kills her, right? No, a witcher. A no. witcher hires the priest to kill her. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. No. That's warrior nun you're thinking of. Yeah, yeah. The priest hires the witcher to kill her. And it was a con the whole time to, like... Get rid of a powerful woman. Yes. Because the servant who accused the woman was poisoning the priest, and the witcher made up this curse... And so they killed an innocent woman for money. Yeah. And power. And Vesemir's response to hearing this story from Tetra is, Nice. That con is badass. I wish I thought of that. He says, I wish I thought of that. <laughs> I, yeah. And it seems like I, there's an element of truth in some jokes, and I think that's what it is. He seems to not be totally serious, but it does not land well with Tetra. No, it's one of those half jokes. Yeah. And she takes it as a full offense. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a good reason for that, though. Because. We find out later. That that woman. Was her. Mother. Mother. Dang. That's rough. Yeah. Yeah. Vesemir was just like, nice, right to her face. Yeah. I wish I did it. (laughs) <laughs> and she, when she's going, she thinks she's going to kill him in that final confrontation during the siege when they were fighting. Um, after the illusion breaks down, she thinks she's got him on the ropes. The look on her face as she's telling him that woman was her mother that was murdered is like a pure hatred. She, It's like she's blaming Vesemir for the wrongs that were done to her. And he's like a stand-in for that witcher that killed her mother. Yeah, totally. Even though Vesemir almost talked her out of attacking Kaer Morin, in a moment of, like, real genuine concern. I don't remember exactly what he said, though. But he was very earnest. Oh, he was like, 
you have my word that we're going to stop making monsters. And she says, what is, uh, how much is your word worth? Right. right. She's like some things you can't put a price on. And she was that just seems, like, that seems to mean something to her though. And then she asks Daglin. And Daglin's like, fuck you. I don't give a shit. I'm going to make all the monsters I want. And she's like, okay, fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> like, it seemed like she was actually willing to listen to Vesemir because they did help each other out a bit. Yeah. And she was like, you know, maybe. A lot of movies <laughs> have plots that like hinge on misunderstandings. I don't think there's many misunderstandings in this movie. It's just straight up some people are huge dicks and that's, yeah. they go with it. Yeah. Because Tetra does not misunderstand Daglin. Vesemir tries to smooth things over and Tetra and Daglin just will not let it happen. They butt heads. He, <laughs> right before he said that, they were butting heads. He put an arm in front of Daglin and started talking about like how they won't make any more monsters and stuff. He tried to step in the middle of them and it just did not work. <laughs> Daglin's just like, I never agreed to this. Yeah. It really felt like a D&D adventuring party moment when you have like that one diplomatic member of the party who like says that the poor diplomatic member. exact right thing to almost convince somebody to like do whatever you're trying to do in a diplomatic situation. And the rogue is like, backstab! Yeah, pretty much. Dude. And the, it's just like, palm to forehead, like, come on, guys. E Deglin could have lied also. <laughs> I just know. said, yeah, I'll stop. Yeah. And then as they turned their back, he could have been like, can you believe that fucking idiot? <laughs> <laughs> Vesemir would just be dead inside. <laughs> that slap you heard was a face palm, listener. <laughs> oh yeah, but that explains Tetra's trauma in Absolutely. this situation. It bred hatred in her and yeah. led to all-out conflict. And it led to a of, lot of death. She, yeah. as can sometimes happen with trauma, it became generalized for her, and all witchers and their whole institution basically killed her mother. She saw. She blamed them all. Yeah. Definitely. She viewed an entire class of people as the same. Oh, shit. Is mm -hmm. this happening? I think it's happening. Because you know what? We've been dancing around it this whole episode. Yep. But so much of this movie is about class struggle. So, guys, this movie is lousy with class struggle. You know, I think there's a cream for that. There might be. Like that Wu-Tang song, Cream. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, we've got so much going on here. I was just frantically writing notes the whole time. We've got Vesemir as a child who sees that he will, if he doesn't do something like becoming a witcher, he will always be stuck in this low-class existence that he has, he and he is not happy with that. Yeah, he doesn't want to become his father, who's completely broken and subservient to the lord and lady they serve. Right. Ilyana is another like great example of this. She's basically of the same class that Vesemir is, but 
she has different ambitions than he does. He sees being a witcher as this escape. And he offers, you know, Vesemir says, I'll like su- support you and take care of you. And she says, I don't want to trade a master who hates me for one who loves me. Basically saying that she doesn't want to be like a subservient wife to a doting husband. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know what happened with her and Lord Zerbst. Mm-hmm. But she kind of says that he was okay. But she literally gets taken in as like a refugee and then brought up to an elevated class. But through marriage, and we can see through Tetra that that is a very... Tenuous position to ten- be in. Tenuous position, exactly. Even though you know, Yana has some status, it is not the same status that is quote-unquote born into the nobility. Her word on the court doesn't carry as much weight. Exactly. We also have witchers as second-class citizens for the whole region, and really we know from the wider world, like the whole universe of the witcher. And then we also have elves who are, much like witchers, othered, Yeah. but also pushed to the fringes of society, I think in... I mean, not to compare traumas in a similar way to Witcher's, possibly even a more severe periphery pushing. Well, they were genocided. (laughs) Yes, I I know that. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm saying their status is so removed from human society. Witcher's interact with humans. Elves are more or less isolationist because of... The genocide. It's a form of survival. I mean, really, they're seen as vermin, like monsters. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Humans the- don't even give them any regard. They might be fearful of witchers, which I guess in the universe is treated as like a tacit respect, kind of. Like you don't mess with witchers, but humans just loathe elves mm-hmm. for the most part. Actually, they're not that different at all. (laughs) Well, we learned from watching the Witcher show that the history there is that when there was the conjunction of the spheres in the distant past and humans emerged into this setting, elves tried to help them in the transition. (laughs) Idiots. And they taught them how to survive there in those lands and how to use magic for the people that seem to have an affinity for it. And once people realized there was this new resource to take advantage of, they wanted it all for themselves. And that is seems to me to be largely what spurred on the conflict between humans and elves. El- uh, humans wanted it all for themselves. Thank God there are no real-world parallels we could draw to these occasions. Yeah, thank goodness. Phew. (laughs) That would be tense, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. Cringe? Super cringe. But yeah, so all joking aside, (laughs) there's a lot of these themes in this movie that come out in all the Witcher fiction. But... I, I think that, you know, for the most part, we are, as the audience, kind of expected to sympathize with witchers, with elves. I mean, in both this film and in the Witcher series, we see Vesemir and Geralt are friends with Philavandril. 
Yeah. Now, Philip Andrew accuses Vesemir of not listening to him and saying that basically if he had listened to Philip Andrew, a lot of the trouble that happened in this movie would not have happened. But there's still like kind of a connection between them. Like Vesemir gives credence to Philip Andrew and supports him when he says he's going to take the Elven child. Vesemir's like, hey, he's going to do what he says. Like, you can trust this guy. And, you know, similarly, later on, Geralt builds a relationship with Philavandro. Yeah. Where Vesemir and Geralt sort of depart from one another, I think, is Vesemir sees himself foremost as a monster hunter. For sure. And when Philavandro's like, hey, want to help me save some elves? Vesemir's like, <laughs> nice joke. No? <laughs> Question mark? He's like, I don't do charity work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas Geralt would have just been like, well, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I there's think, a major difference. Yeah, Geralt sees a lot of his own plight and situation in the Elven one. Geralt is much more self-aware, see, class conscious right. than Vesemir is. Vesemir is a part of his class as a witcher, but he is more of a glory hound. We see scenes of him, like, reveling in having gold coins tossed at him. He's gregarious. <laughs> he's greedy because he's kind of, like, coin drunk. <laughs> Meanwhile, Geralt has a whole song about having coins tossed at him, but doesn't really revel in it. He hates it. He kind of hates the spotlight. He's a get-paid-and-get-out kind of guy. Vesemir is a get-paid party hard with everybody and like wake up on the floor of the tavern type of guy. At least at the beginning, I think he was. Yes, exactly. As we meet Vesemir. Seeing that the perception of the group he was a part of shatter apart, I think made him more into the mentor of Geralt. And right. what helped fuel that is after that, everything breaks apart. Right. Daeglin finally admits that he was wrong in the way he says to Vesemir, go and train those boys and make them better than we were. Right. Yeah. I think that we have a really interesting story here about what happens when you lose, for lack of a better word, your homeland. Right? Yeah. Kaer Morin is sacked in this film. And that is the only home most of them have ever known. Literally burns and collapses in the background. Yeah. And you know how hard it is to burn down stone buildings. Yeah, yeah. You takes, need jet fuel. Takes, you know, a few hours, but... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we're getting this backstory to this collective trauma that witchers go through. Right. In Geralt's timeline, they are... You know, Geralt talks about how the secret of creating witchers has been lost. In this time, we are seeing that happening, but Vesemir hasn't lived through that trauma yet. His trauma had more to do with growing up poor, whereas Geralt's trauma is going to have a lot more to growing up kind of without a place to call home. And without much of a community. Yeah. Uh, there's also the trauma they both share of seeing many of their classmates die right in front of their eyes. Oh, yeah, that'll traumatize you, too. And then being put through days or weeks of torturous experiments to warp your biology. 
Yeah, you know, little things like and that. And seeing your classmates die from that, too. Yeah. And being in, like, a pit of water while it's happening or strapped to a table so you can't move. Hey, but at least they didn't get turned into eels. <laughs> push your friend in the water with the rake. Use the rake, push the eel. God, that is a this is a good series. <laughs> I forgot about the eels. Oh, I love the Witcher. <laughs> you were just I remember blown away by the rake pushing of eels into the water. It's just the most visually unreality thing I've ever seen. Just like a chick with like a little weird looking rake, just like scooping an eel. It's like a tool specifically made for the purpose of <laughs> Pushing your eel classmates into a, like... <laughs> like someone got it commissioned. It's just, oh. It is wild. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. <laughs> it's, whoa. <laughs> that scene makes this whole universe just so much more beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I think um, this universe is pretty rough on people yeah again thank god totally not a mirror of reality yeah yeah but yeah witchers the process of becoming a witcher not everyone asks for it most people don't survive the process the ones who do saw how lucky they were to make it through yeah everyone who went through it is like lucky to have survived and the only people maybe the only people who can relate to them are each other, right. right? They can't talk to anyone else about it. Maybe that's why they're viewed as so like separate from other people. They can't. They don't talk about it. Yeah, it's sad that they live in an, in a universe that is devoid of empathy. Yeah, I mean, maybe later on in, in Geralt's life, the reason that he identifies so well with other monsters and the elves is partly because he doesn't have that community of other witchers around him. Yeah. And after Kaer Morin collapsed, they can't make more witchers. Like you said, it's a dying, it's a dying group. And they're dying because they fight monsters, too. <laughs> it's just dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Not a great career choice. Not going to lie. It's true. And so, you know, they're doing their best. They're doing their best. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, Vesemir really seems to revel more in his kind of weird class situation he is situated in where he comes from extreme poverty. He has learned a opulent lifestyle. He's become accustomed to a modicum of celebrity and he likes to kind of show off his wealth and live extravagantly as much as he can. But I, you know, it seems pretty apparent that by the end of the film, his lifestyle is going to change significantly as he is going to be put in this new role as trainer and father figure to the surviving Witcher recruits. Yeah, before he was not interested in having any part of that, he was more selfish and greedy. But going through this trauma, yeah, made him realize the importance of community. Yeah, a lot of the film is about aspiration and how trauma kind of shapes our aspirations and our kind of class awareness. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to tie it all together. It's impactful. 
So we've also touched on a little bit on the different ways that class and trauma are felt by people of different genders. Yes. But we could go deeper into that. I think we should. Yes. So Ilyana doesn't want to just trade one master for another. I was a little bit confused by that because in the end she ended up marrying a lord um, and got higher station, but I think I got that they cared about one another. It seems like And it, it was yeah. mutual. But she did care about Vesemir. It wasn't about that. She didn't want to be beholden to him for him being the only one earning money but she still ended up in that situation later, I think. I mean, I think that that goes back to what I was saying about how aspirations and class kind of have this headbutting contest yeah. in this film where she wanted something, but then the tr so her her homeland was overthrown. Yeah. So she kind of was taken out like her ability to have autonomy was extremely limited. She ended up taking the path that gave her a modicum of autonomy, but she had the aspiration to be fully autonomous. Yes. As a child. And because of the society that they live in, women or female-bodied individuals don't have as much autonomy as the male counterparts. Mm -hmm. But it's just in stark contrast in this story to highlight that difference between gender experiences. And the thing is, is that the witchers only take in boys. They are biased and prejudiced, thinking that girls couldn't go through that process. Whatever prejudices they have, it's it's not really covered very much in this movie. Basically not at all. Yeah. We, we mostly in these shows and movies see the most powerful female characters as in, I'm talking like power level in combat here or, or whatever are mages. Yes. And we can talk about them in a moment, but I want to stick with Ilyana for a moment. And she sends a letter to Vesemir when he's in training, when they're still young. And she basically does the trope thing where she's like, it's okay. Go on and have, your life, the life you want, and don't worry about little old me over right. here. Well, I I have no way to really realize my dreams. You go live your dreams. And like giving the strong or creative man the okay to do whatever their thing is while you're stuck in a shitty position as the woman or female-bodied person. And so, yeah, I think over time it must have been that she ended up like you're saying, Jamie, realizing that if she wanted any kind of measure of autonomy, she needed the power that comes along with a, a different class than the one she was in. And she ended up having more autonomy after her husband died and she was a widow right. because he left everything to her. And she had the title of a lady. She started, she used the money and property to start an orphanage and actually participated in court and would come and, and share her opinion and actually took that seriously and did and took advantage of it. She didn't take it for granted. So it, in the end, I think she kind of got a little bit of what she wanted, but she had to do it through different means than she would have liked because she was female. Yeah, she was still dealing with the limitations of the society she was in. 
So that was like the coverage of the vanilla humans uh, experience there, a female experience. And Jamie, you were mentioning it's different for powered individuals. Chaos-infused individuals. That's right. Witchers and mages and the like. Yeah, well, witchers are all men, but mages are mostly female. There is a male school of witchcraft uh, and magery. (laughs) um, (laughs) Ah, magery, the fine art. Yeah, but they're kind of separated. And many of the female mages are court mages. Yeah. An important thing to remember about mages and witchers, like I mentioned earlier, they live hundreds of years. Yes. Yeah. Which is why a court mage, in addition to just being devastating with magic, provides decades or hundreds of years of wisdom and experience, which can be quickly discarded. (laughs) Yes, but they can also outlive the monarchs even the family lines of the monarchies. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting gender dynamics that happen in the series with mages and monarchs. We've got Tetra, the court mage for the king of Caedwin. We've got Mauzak, who was Queen Calanthe's court mage in in the TV series. Yennefer was, you know, uh, bounced around between different courts. Yeah. She didn't know what she wanted. <laughs> uh, no, she knows what she wants. It's power. Right. It is the power of chaos, which is the same power that powers witchers, as Tetra points out in this film. I thought she wanted a child. Isn't that what she keeps saying? Wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, now here's the real question of the entire series. Though. Do you think Yen would be a good mother? Well. <laughs> <laughs> so something interesting is even when women or female bodied people are powered in or powerful like with magic <laughs> in this setting they still have to fit within a particular role in the society and if they are too powerful then they're seen as dangerous like with kitsu or tetra's mother right and still tetra is still bound by the societal roles because she says that Kitsu can't be allowed to live and the elven child that she successfully experimented on that they saved, she didn't want to let her go, that child go, because she said she would be too dangerous, she's too powerful. So she's, Tetra herself is even bound by these these constraints. And, and she might not want competition from potentially other powerful magic users out there. You know, you could be right, and that just it, that wasn't said in this movie. But what, from what we know from watching the show, is that mages always have an ulterior motive. Yeah. So it's very possible. Which honestly is a pretty limiting scope to um, put an entire class of people into. Yeah, but, it's true. But what are you gonna do? I guess that's just the way things were back then. <laughs> yeah. It could also just be a limitation of writing, trying to write a TV show. <laughs> I've always thought of the Witcher series taking place in the far future. That's interesting. Like, we're not at the point in time yet where the conjunction of the spheres has happened. 
Where I'll buy Earth it. touches this place in the future, and then uh, just a section of humans gets separated, and then it's way further in the future after that. I think of this probably like a couple thousand years in the future, normally. But yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we are discussing a world where, much like in our own reality, yeah, your condition of your birth has big impacts on the implications and the potential that is laid out before you for the rest of your life. Some people will have big aspirations and will find a way to fulfill some of their aspirations. Some people will be very limited by their circumstances and will have to eke out an existence based on those limitations. Yeah, there's an interesting fallacy in our culture. You're just making me think about this fallacy that we have about the, a relationship between genius, which is gendered actually, hmm. and and being wealthy. There's a false yes. relationship that is believed in our culture that if you're a genius, you're going to be wealthy. Or if you're a wealthy person, you must be a genius. Exactly. It can go either way. But actually, most geniuses end up like in poverty or staying in poverty or just most of them are unknown. <laughs> and a lot of people who are very wealthy uh, might just be lucky. Or they have people who work for them who do most of the work. <laughs> and they're just the most manipulative people that were able to get to the top. I had trouble finding anything nice to say, so I didn't say much. <laughs> Well, you know, we've said a lot, and now that we've probably pissed off a lot of people, maybe it's time to head into the smithy. Welcome to the smithy, where we forge a rating for this movie after we each share an epic moment or feature from the film. Jack, do you want to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from 1 to 10 silver swords? Yes. But, the, oh my gosh, there are so many good scenes in this film. But the epic scene I'm talking about, we mentioned it already. We said it was cool. It was the kiss. No Aww. surprise there. Oh, very nice. No surprise there. Do you want to describe it in excruciating detail? Yeah, we kind of touched on it before, but we didn't give all the deets. Well, it's Vesemir and Ileana. When they were kids, it was so clear that they liked each other. Ileana kind of liked him a little more than the, uh, you know, the inverse of that. He liked her, but he was a distracted kid, you know. His mind yeah. was sort of all over the place. He wasn't sure what he was supposed to value because he was suffering, right? He yeah. wasn't able to perceive what was good about his life, and it was her. Right. Really, for the most part. And he liked her, but he wasn't able to really act on that well. They almost kissed twice, though. It didn't happen. She writes him this letter when he goes to Karamoran. I'm out of your life. Have a good one, right? And it's like, oh, shit. But they really liked each other, right? But they're in their late 60s now, right? She's an older woman. Probably 69, if you know what I mean. Nice. Yeah, she's an older woman. She looks like an older woman, right? I mean, very fine, but, you know, very visibly aged. And he is not 
very visibly aged. He's probably looking like in his 20s or 30s. Yeah. And yeah, it's just that I just the killer lines. Oh, I'm almost 70. Me too. And then they kiss. It's just this like Chad stud making out with this beautiful older woman. I'm like, oh, this is hype. And they love each other and they're best friends. And it's good. When he grabs her chin and she knows he's going to kiss her, she gets a really surprised look on her face. Yeah. And it's it's pretty genuine. But. She she leans in. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Even though the actors looked really weird and flat in this, it was <laughs> they really portrayed emotion well. Yeah, it's true. She was surprised but really happy about it. I love that. Also, I like that they sort of handled that relationship well because she makes it very clear that she's in love with her late husband, but she was still able to have feelings for him yeah. after the fact. But uh what's your rating, Jack? We've we okay. Thank goodness. All I'm going to say is thank goodness Merlin the Return was between this and the Green Knight. Because I'd feel bad about giving this many ratings in a row. And I, I'm going to give this 10 out of 10 Silver Witcher Swords, right? And the reason is, it, it was just excellently paced. Their themes were really clear. The build-up and payoff was like, nearly flawless in my opinion from like they showed setup and later on you're like i remember exactly what they're alluding to right here it was from the beginning of the film to the end very intentional the world felt genuine still I, it was fun while also being really dark and gruesome which is a balance I think a lot of movies have been struggling with for the last couple of years. I feel like they're either dark or they're quirky. This did both really well. And uh, I felt good after watching this. And I've just been excited about it the last like couple of days since we've seen it. So 10 out of 10, I really enjoyed this. I feel silly giving that rating so often recently, but th we've been seeing bangers. So so you're saying that this movie, The Green Knight, and Merlin the Return are the perfect fantasy films? No. <laughs> I'm happy Merlin the Return was sort of like the, uh, you know... The Quiloth rhizome tree of the underworld compared to this movie. Where this movie was fantastic, Merlin just accentuates all the good parts of this movie. <laughs> Sometimes you need something bad to compare against something good. Yeah, yeah, like how the suffering of becoming a witcher makes you closer to other witchers. Okay, very nice. How about you, Chelsea? What's your epic moment or feature and then your rating from 1 to 10 Silver Swords? Mine actually had to do with Vesemir and Ileana, too. Nice. And... It's the kiss. No. It's a sad scene. Yes. It's when they're at the lake together. He's giving her what she said she wanted when they oh, were yeah. kids, is to have a house by a lake. You can't give her the house, but they have that moment together at the lake. It's very sad because she's dying. And she says how beautiful it is. She gets to say that before she passes. And Besimir breaks down. It is so tragic, but 
it is also a really meaningful and impactful moment because he's showing these genuine strong emotions so often in this movie what we see of him is this gregarious swagger and it seems like it's the show but when he's around Ilyana, he's more of his genuine self and it's just such raw emotion and they portrayed it so well in the animation um, yeah it, it just stayed with me it was a touching moment. Yeah. Yeah, I think the animation was beautiful. Yeah. In this movie, too. It, we were saying that I think it's done by the animators who worked on the Korra show. Yeah, I think it's the same studio. I believe I read that. Yeah, I think it's the same studio as Korra. Mm-hmm. Cool. And, uh, yeah, that, that really strikes me. The story... It was hard to describe, but as you're watching it, it's very engrossing and... It washes over you. Yeah. In a good way. And there's a lot of intrigue, but as far as I recall, they they tie everything up in the end. So yeah, I appreciated that as well. I think I need to give it a 10 out of 10 Silver Witcher Swords as well. It, it's a, It's very well done, beautifully executed. And I highly recommend it. Very cool. (laughs) What about you, Jamie? What's your epic moment and or feature? And your rating out of 1 to 10 Silver Witcher Swords. Yes, Jamie, tell us. You know, I'm glad you guys asked. My epic moment, I don't know when the last time one of us did this was, but I'm actually going to pick a combat scene, which we usually don't emphasize that much. Maybe because a lot of movies have disappointing combat scenes, or maybe because uh, I tend to compare everything to, like, the Inigo Montoya and Wesley fight in The Princess Bride. But the fight against Kitsu and her illusions and then the basilisk in this movie is fucking excellent, and it is high impact. It really leans into the fact that this is a anime-inspired animated mm-hmm. film. They're using magic and witcher signs, amazing sword fighting. Tetra and Vesemir are using some interesting tactics and, like, trying to help each other out. Kitsu is using illusions and her powerful magic. And then she sends in this basilisk, and it seems like, oh, fuck. Like, okay, Vesemir is a monster hunter, but this is a really nasty monster. He says that it's, like, different than other basilisks and stuff. And it's just just big, epic fight scene. And it just stood out to me. I was, like, on the edge of my seat for the whole thing. And then at the end, after Vesemir, I think, kills the basilisk, Kitsu, like, runs over and is mourning over it. Yeah. And I thought that was a really good bit of storytelling. A nice touch that really emphasized that... Kitsu is more than a monster, right? Like, that's so much the theme that runs throughout The Witcher. Yeah. Is that the monsters they fight aren't really totally monsters or have much more complex inner worlds a lot of times. Yeah, Mm -hmm. or communities themselves. Yeah. Kitsu feels afraid, threatened. She's trying to protect her region and the people of 
Cadwin are encroaching on her territory. Vesemir is like killing her Leshen and stuff. She's really out for self-preservation, which I think is we should all be able to understand and relate to. And I mean, she's unique, but she needs community just as much as anyone. She's trying to make more beings like herself. Yeah. So I just thought the fight was executed excellently and also that it's set up more than just being a fight scene, but had narrative and storytelling elements within the fight about their individual powers that they were all capable of and also character building between seeing that Vesemir is inherently like wanting to help people as a witcher. I think that's often, even though they're accused of just being out for coin, they care about people. They have to. Like, they wouldn't risk their lives so much, I don't think, if there wasn't a genuine concern for people. Maybe Daglin throws a monkey wrench in that. But, you know, he also helped somebody early on. So, Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, the storytelling with Kitsu and the Basilisk. Really liked the fight scene. I'm going to diverge from you guys a little bit. I really Mm -hmm. enjoyed this. I don't think, for me personally, it's quite a 10 out of 10. I think I'm going to give this one eight silver swords and a silver dagger. Yeah. (laughs) I love the world. I love the movie. It is a little all over the map for me. I feel like some of the story elements, even if they get resolved, don't totally work for me. The way that Mm. some of the characters jump back and forth with their motivations, like I said, where Tetra, like, hates witchers, but works pretty well with Vesemir and is willing to listen to him, but then kind of lets Daglin be the monkey wrench that, you know, gums up her willingness to listen to Vesemir, mm-hmm. who she kind of, I, I, you know, it's complicated. She does owe him and she doesn't owe him, but just the fact that there's kind of this rush to the story, I feel like. We don't get a chance to maybe build up a more fleshed out reason for why she is, you know, for why this fight has to happen at the very end. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, animation takes a long time to make an animated movie. I get it. But I I wanted a few more scenes, I feel like. Maybe I'm giving it a not a perfect rating just because I wanted a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. But so, eight swords and a dagger, still a solid rating. Great rating all around from all of us. Yeah. Had a great time watching this film and discussing it with you Definitely. guys. Totally. And on that note, I think that pretty much does it here for us at Swords and Satire. As always, thank you for joining us and hearing our thoughts about this film. If you had a good time, maybe consider heading on the social media and giving us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Swords and Satire. You can keep up with the show, see what movies we're watching next. And check out some memes that we make for every episode. And like we mentioned, if you have the means, you could join our patron community and help us keep the torches lit here at Castle Satire. If you go over to patreon.com slash swords and satire, you could join our patron community at different tiers and see what kind of bonus content are available to you and get to vote on the movies we watch each month. It's great. That's right. But if you don't have a few extra coins to toss to your favorite podcasters, 
You could always increase the supply and demand for fantasy movie podcasts, creating your own economy and economic foothold in the podcast society, demonstrating <laughs> our necessity to exist. Now, here's what you gotta do. You gotta create a movie review podcast, and every time you get to a fantasy film, you gotta just say, I don't know how to cover this one, folks. Sorry. But you know who can cover this? Swords and Satire. We'll appreciate it, folks. Okay. I think what Jack is trying to say is, let your friends know about us. Oh, yeah. Tell your friends and family. They'll like it. Yeah. Spread the good word. All right. Well, until next time. Hail, Hail Crom. Crom.